Welcome to Stories of the Magic, an unofficial Disney podcast with your host, Randy Crane. Hear stories from Disney cast members, Imagineers, artists, and more right here on Stories of the Magic. And now, here's your host, Randy Crane. Welcome to Episode 5 of Stories of the Magic. I'm Randy, your host. Thank you for joining me. If this is your first time listening, welcome. I hope you enjoy what you hear and that you help it continue by spreading the word and sharing your stories. I invite you to go back and listen to the previous episodes, too. You'll hear some great stories there. If you've listened before, welcome back. I'm glad you're here again. I appreciate your support and hope that you get some great value and entertainment for the time you've chosen to give this show. This week, we welcome to Stories of the Magic, Ron Schneider. Ron has had an extensive career in themed entertainment. In fact, he also has a new book out about those experiences and what he's learned called From Dreamer to Dreamfinder, 40 Years Behind a Name Tag. In this episode, Ron shares with me his connection with Disneyland from day one and how he got his dream jobs, especially his chance to assist in the portrayal of Dreamfinder and Figment at Epcot Center back in the early days. He talks about the many other things he did in his 40 years behind the name tag, including Universal Studios, Banff Lodge, the Titanic Experience, and more. What was his favorite job? What was it like working with Wally Bogue, and how did he first make Wally laugh? What unique experiences did he have when he met Dave Smith and saw the Walt Disney Archives in the early days? Have you wondered how Ron would describe Dreamfinder, and what Dreamfinder was to him, or what he misses most about Dreamfinder? What does Merida have to do with Dreamfinder? The answers to these questions and more in part one of our two-part interview. After a brief word from a fellow podcaster and friend, it's time to turn the page and start this story. My name is Al. And I'm Joyce. And we're We're huge huge Disneyland Disneyland fans. fans. In fact, we love the Disneyland Resort so much, we host a podcast dedicated to the happiest place on Earth to share that passion with others. That's right. On our show, Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast, we share current resort news, some tips and tricks we've learned over the years to help make your Disneyland Resort vacation the most magical experience ever. We uncover little-known and often-overlooked gems we like to call hidden treasures, and even review the attractions and places to eat that make the Disneyland Resort so much fun. And if that wasn't enough... We even share some video episodes to help keep you in that Disney magic state of mind. If you're a longtime fan of the Disneyland Resort, or you've just recently discovered the magic, this podcast is for you. You can find Tales from the Mouse House Disneyland Podcast at www.talescast.com and in iTunes. And remember, make make it it a a Mickey Mickey day. And now... This week's interview on Stories of the Magic. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart of all creation. Right at the start of everything that's new, one little spark lights up for you. If there's one word that captures the essence of Disney, that word just might have to be imagination. And for many people, imagination was embodied best in Dreamfinder and Figment. For five years, Ron Snyder assisted in the portrayal of Dreamfinder, as they say. Before and since, he's been immersed in the world of themed entertainment in many, many ways. And through them all, he's helped bring that one little spark to light up our imagination 
and give us permission to dream and laugh and live. I'm truly thrilled to welcome to Stories of the Magic, Ron Schneider. Ron, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I wish I'd said all that. That was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably at least a few people out there who are unfortunate enough not to have heard of Dreamfinder and Figment or, or not to be familiar with you. So could you tell me a little bit about how you got started with the Walt Disney Company and what you did over your time there? Well, that, for that, we got to go way back to uh, 1955. I was at Disneyland the day it opened. Um, the first day it was open to the public, which was July 18th, 1955. My father had done some of the original air conditioning work on the park. So we had passes, and uh, I was at the park and grew up going to Disneyland, spend my, spend my years always whining to the parents, when are we going to Disneyland? When are we going to Disneyland? And I kept going. And when I was old enough to realize such a thing was possible, I wanted to uh, work there. Wanted to be a Jungle Cruise guide. Always wanted to be the guy sitting up in front with a microphone in his hand showing off. I was interested in performing and puppetry and magic uh, at an early age. And uh, when Walt Disney passed, it just struck me what a tremendous impact he'd had on my life. And then visiting Disneyland, I started to look upon it as another performing venue, something that I might be able to perform in coming out of my love of theater. So that was something that I always had in the back of my mind. When I went to college and studied acting and directing, um, I really got it in my head that I wanted a career in theme parks and pursuing that particular form of performance where you're acting with the guests one-on-one and you're drawing them into the story. To me, that seemed like a very exciting form of theater and also a great way to make a steady paycheck because acting is not steady work. You're always going from gig to gig. And I love the. I was very attracted to the security of uh, having a steady paycheck and a little bit of job security. My very first Disney job goes back to 1970. I was in wardrobe issue for the Christmas Parade, Fantasy on Parade. And that was like a two-week gig. I just turned 18 and uh, got that job and uh, went straight from there. The following summer, Magic Mountain opened, and I started my uh, scramble around to the different uh, theme parks around uh, California. Grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, in 1970, I also saw Wally Bogue at the Golden Horseshoe for the first time, and which was a terrific show. The Golden Horseshoe had been running at Disneyland since 1955 and was the, it is the longest running live stage show in the history of the world, listed in the Guinness Book of World Records. And Wally Bogue was the comic. I saw him on stage and I just thought, oh gosh, I want to do that. That man looks like he's having a tremendous amount of fun. <laughs> so that became my dream job. And from 1970 to 1980, I did everything I could to turn myself into a Wally Bogue clone. I uh, learned all the bits and pieces of, of his act. Uh, he did a traveling salesman bit, so I put together a traveling salesman bit and did that at Magic Mountain for a number of years. They opened a crafts village out there called Spillican Corners, and I was Professor Samuel J. Spillican, selling Grandma Spillican Turbo Cure and Indian Elixir. And uh, <laughs> I was, and the great thing, I was out on my own. I was out on the street with my medicine bag and my props and a cane and uh, just having a lot of fun and, and learning the ropes so that in 1980... When uh, the 25th anniversary of Disneyland rolled around and they were looking for someone to come in and double Wally Bogue to do the Golden Horseshoe shows at night for that 25th anniversary summer, um, I walked in and I was exactly what they were looking for. So I got the job under studying Wally Bogue and my dream came true. So I was at Disneyland for that 25th uh, anniversary summer and spent a couple of years there on call as Wally's understudy. 
Um, then one day in 1982, I attended a seminar at the Disney University. One of the great things about working for Disney is that you get to glimpse behind the, the, the curtain and see the magic meet the people who do these things. And Tony Baxter, the great Imagineer, was doing a presentation at the Disney University about careers at Wet Enterprises, the uh, home of the Imagineers. And he uh, spoke at that uh, presentation about the work he was doing at that time on the uh, new Epcot Center and the specifically Kodak's Journey into Imagination Pavilion. And he talked about the ride and the story of the, the attraction, and he showed us a picture of uh, Dreamfinder and Figment, who were going to be the hosts of the attraction, Dreamfinder being the uh, spirit of imagination and Figment being his creation. And he held up a picture of these two characters, and I had the same feeling I had the first time I saw Wally Bogue. I want to do that, especially when I heard that Dreamfinder and Figment were going to be the only characters at Epcot Center. There was not going to be any Mickey or Minnie or Goofy. There was going to be um, a different kind of park entirely than the Magic Kingdom, and I found that very exciting. So I got in, I got in touch with um, Sonny Anderson, who was the head of talent booking, told them I was interested. And Sonny got in touch with the head of uh, entertainment at Epcot, who was an old friend of mine back from uh, my early acting days in the 60s. So that's how I got the job. Disney brought me out to Orlando in uh, September of 1980. And I got to originate the strolling Dreamfinder and Figment. People would come into the ride, which was a wonderful special effect-filled trip through the process of creativity. Um, there were more special effects in that ride in 1982 than there were in all of Walt Disney World when the park opened in 1971. Wow, it's amazing! That's an incredible show, and uh, they would uh, meet Dreamfinder and Figment on the ride. They'd learn all about how creativity worked, and they'd come off the ride, and there we'd be strolling around through the pavilion, posing for pictures, signing autographs, and playing with the guests. I got to uh, do all the initial work on the character, and there was no manual, no one to teach me how to do it, but I had the background in puppetry and performing and, uh, and theme parks. Disneyland, in fact, had been my hobby since 1966, so I knew quite a bit about Disney theme parks, and as the dream finder, I was kind of the spokesman for all of Epcot Center. Uh, which was a great position because as Dreamfinder, I could discuss anything in the world. I could discuss so creativity. I could discuss Walt Disney or Epcot Center. And um, uh, so I was a different kind of spokesman. I wasn't just uh, playing a character. I wasn't just like Mickey Mouse or Snow White. I could discuss myself and I could discuss Epcot Center, which was uh, quite novel at the time. I did that for five years, uh, meeting the guests and posing for pictures and bringing the characters to life. But most especially uh, during my years doing that, I tried to emphasize and, and carry forward the themes and messages of the ride. So I tried not only to pose for pictures with the guests, but to draw them into the creative process, to play with them in a way that got them to see themselves as creative people. Epcot Center was an inspiration park, the way it was called back then. And uh, the whole idea was to give you an idea of your place in the world and of the wonders that you were capable of and uh, how you could affect the world around you. And so I took that very personally and made that part of my job uh, as Dreamfinder for five years. 
Uh, at the end of that five years, I moved on to, uh, I was always going from theme park job to theme park job. Back in Los Angeles, I was a Universal Studios tour guide, and I worked at Magic Mountain, and I worked for a number of themed restaurants, and just always looking for new experiences in this particular kind of performance. So when I left um, Epcot in 87, I went to work for Robert Earl, who had King Henry's Feast, and Mardi Gras and was big with theme restaurants. Later on, he went on to do Planet Hollywood and the Hard Rock Cafe. We created a Western theme restaurant in Kissimmee called Fort Liberty Wild West Dinner Show, which I wrote and directed and starred in. Did that for a couple of years. Went on from there to Universal Studios, where I was creative manager for the Celebrity Lookalikes. Uh, did that for a year and a half and then was promoted to writer for the entire attraction. Uh, did some more theme restaurants. Went up to Canada. I did... Uh, uh, themed dinner show up in uh, Banff Springs up in the Canadian Rockies for a couple of years and came back down. I worked at Titanic, the exhibition as an actor guide for six years. That was a wonderful experience. And then went from there. My final Disney job was uh, on the opening crew of the Monsters Incorporated Laugh Floor, where I uh, assisted the monsters in doing uh, computer generated stand up and did that for about two and a half years. And finally, uh, left off there, went off back to Los Angeles for a while to be with my family, and wound up back here in Orlando. And uh, now I've written a book about all that. Wow, that is quite an amazing history. <laughs> Forty years behind the name tag, as you titled your book, mm -hmm. there's a lot covered there. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this is probably an unfair question, but of all of that, all the roles and positions you had throughout that entire career, is there any one that you could say was your favorite that is – it's a common question, and the the truthful answer is that I have a lot of favorites for different reasons. Um, the Golden Horseshoe was a dream of mine for so long, and I only got to do it for a little under two years, um, which has always been a source of frustration for me. I could have stayed in that show for 10, 15 years and been very, very happy. loved carrying on that tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, originating the Dream Finder well, took me to a whole new level, and – Oh, so it was a dream beyond my dream, and um, I have tremendous affection for the characters. It was a much more difficult job to do than the horseshoe. The horseshoe was a very cushy job. I was in air conditioning. I had people in front of me who were standing in line to see me. They laughed at everything I said. Then, boom, I go to do Dream Finder. I'm out in the Florida heat. I'm working to one family at a time. I have to deal with all the, the makeup and the wig and the dragon and all this stuff. But uh, very rewarding in an entirely different way. And then the wonders of working with the lookalikes at Universal Studios, where I was writing and training and directing the Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy and W.C. Fields and Beetlejuice and the Blues Brothers shows and all of that, where we got away from the Disney philosophy. We went into the Universal philosophy, which is a little bit more wild. Characters are more rebels. Uh, you, to put it plainly, you can get away with a lot more. Sure. I discovered the, the joy of working through other people. I wasn't the one performing anymore, but I was training other people, and I'm pleased to say that a lot of the people that I worked with have gone on to careers uh, building on what I taught them. And that was tremendously rewarding as well. And now I'm at a state where the whole thing just kind of becomes a giant uh, happy wash. Oh, and Titanic was very rewarding because I was finally – I was playing a real person for one thing, which I had not done before. I was portraying someone who was aboard Titanic and doing a, a one-man show uh, for the latter half of that where I was uh, – for one hour, I had a captive audience 
I was taking them through this museum and telling them the story of Titanic, which is an incredible story, not just the tragedy, but the, the, the marvels of the ship and the people on board and the parties and all that stuff that lead up to that. And very emotionally uh, stirring and inspiring and uh, very personal for people. And that was rewarding in an entirely different way. So the answer to your question is, yeah, I got a lot of favorites. <laughs> Each part your favorite for very different reasons and for very good and intriguing reasons. You know, I think a lot of people probably tend to think of a favorite job as, oh, it was the most fun or it was the most challenging or whatever. But it sounds like as you've looked back on them, each one can be your favorite in its own category in some ways. That's right. Okay, good. Thank you for sharing that. Now, you and I actually talked before we started recording a little bit about some of the people that you worked with at the Walt Disney Company, and then you shared some of that also during the answer to the first question. You had a chance to work with a lot of different people in a lot of different capacities with the Walt Disney Company. So let me ask you first, I know it was before you actually started working there, but because you were at Disneyland on opening day and then as much as you could throughout the years, did you ever see or get a chance to meet Walt Disney? I saw the top of his head. <laughs> I was uh, with my family. We were at Town Square on Main Street, and I had uh, gotten my father to agree that I could go off by myself for a while. And so I was up on the second floor. Of this, I was on the upper deck of the omnibus, and we're pulling <laughs> down the road, and my sister was running after the omnibus pointing back and going, Ronnie, Ronnie, look. And she's pointing back the way the bus from the way I was heading the other direction. And I saw this crowd of people. <laughs> and somewhere in the middle of that crowd of people, there was the head of Walt Disney. <laughs> Close as I got. I was living at Cal Arts um, while I was working my first summer at Magic Mountain. Back and this will be the summer of '71. I was living in the Cal Arts dorms, which is down the freeway, and I would hitchhike to um, Magic Mountain. And then one morning, I was walking through Cal Arts on my way to the freeway entrance to stick my thumb out to get to work. And this limo went by, and Roy Disney was sitting in the back seat. So that was my brush with Roy. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the happiest story I have like this is recently I got to visit the Walt Disney Museum. Have you been up there yet, by the way? I have. It's amazing. Oh, us. And I'm walking through there, and suddenly, for some reason, this very large man with this immense smile comes up and says, are you having a good time? And I look up, and I went, Ron? And it was Ron Miller. Oh, wow. And uh, I reminded him that we had met uh, the, at Epcot Center's opening. We had a very funny brush. And then he steps aside, and standing behind him was Diane, and they stood there, talked to me for 20 minutes. So that was my, that's my brush with the Disney family. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. So, but that's <laughs> as close as I've gotten to meeting Walt. Okay. Well, you did get to meet someone as you were working at the park that I really wish I'd gotten to meet or even get to see. I didn't get to see any of his performances at all. But what was it like to work with and learn from Wally Bogue? Oh, amazing. Amazing. It, uh, I was such a fan, and I had filmed him, and I had taped him, and I knew all the bits and stuff like that. But then finally, uh, uh, the, when the notice went out in 1980 that they were looking for a second cast for the horseshoe, and I had been doing the medis a medicine pitch, kind of like Wally's for a while at Magic Mountain. Mm -hmm. so, uh, I wasn't really nervous when I went to the audition. I took my medicine bag with me, and I 
came in there. I'd seen now. Here's the thing: I'd seen the horseshoe show uh, about a week before, and if you know what Wally Bogue used to do, he they did a wonderful number called Pecos Bill, and during the number. Um, the uh, male lead would act like he was hitting Pecos Bill and he'd smack Wally and Wally would spit out some teeth, mm-hmm. really dried baby lima beans. And he'd have like about 80 of them in his cheek and he'd be spitting them all over the place. It was a terrific gag, just hysterically funny. So when uh, about a week before the audition, I had seen Wally and just for luck, I had picked up one of the lima beans and put it in my pocket. So when I got up to do the medicine pitch for Wally, I was going through the thing, and he's sitting there, and I, at the one point I hit the bottle with my cane, and I missed the cane and hit myself in the head, and I shook my head, <laughs> and I spit out the bean, and Wally fell off his chair. <laughs> wow, what an incredible compliment. Um, yeah, and um, a couple of weeks later, I got the letter from Disney. I got a phone call from Disney saying, we want you to come in tomorrow and start working, uh, start training for the Golden Horseshoe. So the next day, I'm there, and... Watch the show, and the audience files out. Wally comes down, grabs me, takes me up to his dressing room, and, and my training started. And um, the sad thing was that when you understudy Wally Bogue, you don't get to see Wally Bogue. When I was at the Horseshoe, with a few exceptions, it was because Wally wasn't there. So while I got to see, spend a lot of time with Fulton Burley and Betty Taylor, and Fulton was just a miracle of a human being. But um, when I would go to the horseshoe, it was because Wally wasn't there. And so I didn't get to see him as much when, uh, once I got the job. But we got to spend some time together. He was, uh, he was very businesslike about what he did, but very sweet and very forthcoming. And sharing his dressing room, I used, got to use his dressing room, was a miracle. There was a Muppet. They made a Muppet out of his bagpipes that was stored up in his closet in the dressing room. And, <laughs> and uh, there was a file cabinet, and in the file cabinet were all the drafts of the Enchanted Tiki Room script. Oh, wow. So you could go through all the drafts and see how the, the, sh- the show evolved. Um, just uh, it's wonderful being a part of that whole space, being part of that operation, the backstage at the Horseshoe. I mean, it's, it was not a new place. You could tell the place was put up in 1955. But the spirit of those people and the warmth that they they gave you was just amazing. Uh, this was this was a place that was still running under the spirit of Walt Disney, mm-hmm. even when I was there in, in 1980. You could tell the 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 spirit of Walt Disney still permeated that park and the way people treated each other and looked out for each other. And uh, with night, you know, I was there at Epcot. In uh, 82, 83, when the new regime came in, and things changed quite a bit. But uh, it was wonderful being at Disneyland. I'm so glad I got to work at Disneyland at that time. Definitely. And with your interest that you'd taken in studying themed entertainment and how the parks operate and just that whole side of it, to be able to be in the environment on the show side, the performance side, and even be able to see things like those scripts and early drafts of the Enchanted Tiki Room, that must have just been such a thrill to see even more than you could have mm-hmm. any other way. Mm-hmm. Now, before you and I started recording, uh, we talked just a little bit about another person that you got to to meet and uh, interact with quite a bit at the company, and really one of, I think, the first people to make a huge impact on you and what you were doing, and that was Dave Smith. 
Uh, oh, your yeah. listeners have heard enough about Dave Smith. <laughs> They've heard enough about him from him. That's true. <laughs> Let's talk about him behind his back. Okay. <laughs> um, well, in 1970, I was in high school and uh, was uh, I subscribed to Variety magazine, the Bible of show business. And there was a little blurb in one page about the new Disney archives. And uh, they mentioned that this UCLA librarian, David Smith, was being put in charge of this. So I immediately dropped a note to David saying, congratulations, and uh, if you need an assistant, call me immediately. And um, He wrote back and saying, if you ever want to come and visit, please. And I went, whoa! I wrote back immediately, and in next to no time, I'm there. So this is the very first time I got to visit the stu- Disney Studios, which, of course, we all become familiar with on television. You know, it's like walking onto a college campus. It really was. Mm-hmm. Um, I walk into the animation building, and I go up to the top floor, and all the way at the end of the top floor, uh, I knock on the door, and the uh, door opens, and there's Dave. And, I mean, as I say in the book, he was like straight out of central casting. You know, he's, he's got this this wonderful librarian look about him, which he had <laughs> even way back then. Um, and he opens the door, and he brings me into the room, and he explains to me that the office that we're standing in was Walt's secretary's office. In fact, we are on the we're in Walt's suite of offices, mm-hmm. and now this is back. The archives had just started. I must have been one of the very first people from the real world to come into the space. And you know, you go to the archives now, and through through the blessings of D twenty three, a lot of people are getting to see this stuff. And it's a vast complex with huge storage and there's offsite facilities and climate controlled storage and offices and reading rooms and, and everything's been cabinets and behind cases. That was not the case. When I visited, everything was sitting out in this room. There was a, um, beautiful wooden hutch, blonde wood with glass fronts and lights. And I walk over and sitting on a pile on the front of this hutch is a stack of animation cells, which I immediately recognize are from steamboat Willie. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm standing there. I can't believe it. And I ask, can I pick this up? He goes, sure. Yeah, I pick it up. <laughs> I'm holding the cell from Steamboat Will. And there's water spots on it. And I asked Dave, what's with the water spots? He says, when I found these, they were stored under a leaky pipe. Oh. And oh. I said, and so I immediately, I was the first person in this world to say, thank God for Dave Smith. You know, and I turn around through the room, there is this um, wardrobe cart in the middle of the room, and hanging on the wardrobe cart is Fess Parker's Davy Crockett outfit and Guy Williams' Zorro outfit and the Holy of Holies, Annette Funicello's sweatshirt. Oh, wow. And there's the Lincoln robot from 1964 New York World's Fair, and everything is just out in this room. He's just started pulling it all together. And I'm surrounded by all these miracles. Then we go into the next room, and there's this this, this giant storage room. He's got more stuff in there. And then we go into Walt's working office, and that's got more stuff there. And then he opens the final door, and we walk into Walt's formal office, just like you see it in the theme parks now. And But this is 1970 we're doing this. The room had not been changed since Walt had passed. It had just been dusted. Mm. It was just as Walt had left it. 
and I walk around the desk and um, just I was just marveled. And he was telling me about the different artifacts on the wall and the different things on the around the desk and stuff like that. It was just wonderful, and I got to use Walt's bathroom. <laughs> Not uh, many can say that. Many can say that, but uh, I was touched by Walt's plumbing. <laughs> and um, and then Dave out to the back lot, walked me around the back lot, showed me the sets from Zorro and that house from the Love Bug. Then finally, he's dropping me off at the front gate, and I said, well, where are you heading now? He says, well, we're, we're screening Peter Pan for Richard Collier, who's going to write the biography of Walt Disney. Uh, this is before Bob Thomas got the job, actually. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you got room for one more? And he takes me back up to the top station <laughs> building, and I said, screening room in Walt's chair uh, with the ashtray right next to me and um, I got to watch the studio print of Peter Pan while this guy is behind me at this lit desk taking notes. That's Dave Smith and I have been back to the archives many times since and I have seen Dave and met Dave and uh, he's just the sweetest man and so forthcoming and so helpful and so much fun and, um, you know, like I say with every, everybody says, thank God for Dave Smith. I mean, he just really put the whole thing out there for us and has, has just been so forthcoming and generous with his time to everybody. And uh, so he's a good friend. And, I, and he was the first person in the company who really reached out and, and made me feel like I belonged. Wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah, he is exactly as you describe him, speaking from my own personal experience. And so I'm glad that you were able to have the, the experience that you did back there in 1970. I could probably ask you about, I don't know, 50, 100 other people, and we could talk for another five hours about that, but we should probably move on. So I want to ask about not a, well, a person, but not in the same vein. Mm-hmm. Probably the the person, the character that people best know you for, at least the people that I have talked to and know of, is Dreamfinder. Mm-hmm. For those who maybe don't know who he is, or even those who think they do, who is Dreamfinder? How would you describe Dreamfinder? When they were creating the Journey to Imagination attraction, uh, you're trying to create a concrete experience about this ephemeral concept and Tony Baxter and his team uh, were faced with this challenge and they tried many different things, broke things down into different ways. They um, were doing a presentation to Kodak to sell them on the idea and they needed some kind of character to personify imagination, to act as a storyteller, to explain to the audience what was going on. Uh, Tony had done some prior work on a concept for Disneyland called Discovery Bay, which was going to have a crazy inventor who uh, had a, a dragon, as a matter of fact, and they had a little sculpture of him, it was in Kirk Wise's office, and Tony ran over to Kirk Wise's office during the presentation and said, right, give, 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 me the, give me the Professor Marvel thing. So they, he brought, him with a, brought in the uh, statue of the, uh, of the Professor Marvel character from Discovery Bay with the dragon, and Kodak says, can we get the dragon too? And Tony says, yeah, sure, we'll give you the dragon. Kodak says, yeah, but the dragon's green. Kodak film is yellow. Mm-hmm. Fujifilm is green. He said, oh, well, we can change that. We can change that. And so that's how the character started. And basically, the, uh, 
the way the ride panned out, Dreamfinder became the guy who explained how imagination worked. And by way of demonstrating that, he took sparks of inspiration and created Figment in the first scene, pulled together uh, two tiny wings, eyes big and yellow, horns of a steer, uh, personality of a child, and put them together and created Figment so that the audience had a visceral experience of see how creativity worked. Dreamfinder was the practical left brain side of imagination. Uh, he was all about how things work and, um, and making things uh, work in a, in a very practical sense, whereas Figma was the right brain side. He was the wild, impractical, creative, wild side, the child's imagination. And so they complement each other. They were two halves of the same thing. And um, that's how the characters evolved. Dreamfinder was the, the very first meeting I had with Tony where he got to sit me down, and uh, Barry Braverman was with us. He was working on Imageworks. And they kind of told me the whole story about these characters, and uh, one of the things that Tony said was that Dreamfinder is Walt Disney. He's that guy who hosted the shows on Sunday nights, who took us into his world and showed us um, how all these things worked. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I always looked at, uh, looked at his carrying on that tradition. And being that kind of creative uncle, that kind of encouraging presence for people. So bringing that to life, you had a lot to work with, uh, with that character. Um, so much was about the relationship of the two characters. Uh, I think the reason that one of the reasons that Figman is, is so fondly thought of uh, to this day, in spite of some of the things that have been done to him in the recent manifestation of the ride, is because he was such a beloved character in the original ride. Um, Figment wasn't a pest. He was uh, Dreamfinder's beloved creation. He was his child. He was loved and respected and uh, cherished. Um, when they redid the ride, they kind of took the easy route in writing for Figment. They made him a bit of a pest. And mm-hmm. um, we lost a lot of what made the character uh, of great value. In the original ride, you'd come through, and at the end, we were in, alone in the room with Figment. He was imagining all these different parts of what he, where he might go in life. There was all these films around him, of him as a movie star, as a mountain climber, an undersea explorer, a cowboy, a superhero. These are all things that he was imagining about his future, and we could identify. We could identify that this is, this is our lives. We could do anything with our lives through the power of imagination. If you can dream it, you can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, Dreamfinder, the enabler of that. He was the man who stood back and said, yeah, you go for it, guy. Anything you want to do, you can do. This is, it's, it's all possible. And that's what Dreamfinder was to me, um, was carry, uh, a method of carrying that on. And that was the big reward, was, was bringing that to life with people. The two things that I miss about doing the Dreamfinder, one of the kids' faces, when you'd engage them in an imaginative game, when you would ask a child, you know, what are you? You know, I always. <laughs> so the, the very first scene of the ride was Dreamfinder collecting sparks of inspiration, and I found that when I started treating the guests that way as sparks of inspiration, that's when it clicked for me. And so a child would walk up, and they, you know, they expect to have their picture taken, and that's it. But I say, "What are you?" A child's not used to thinking like that. I'd say, "Sure." I'd say, "I've never seen anything like you before." What are you? The child gets very serious and goes. I'm, I'm a boy. I said, a boy? Well, that's amazing. And you, have you got a name? And, and you, get the, you get this wonderful look of, of, 
of, of concentration and a, of awakening on them. And sometimes you can even get the parents to see the child as a creative person for the first time. You know, parents would come up with very low expectations. They just wanted to have the, their child had their picture taken with the monkey because that other parent had his child's picture taken. My job was to, in spite of themselves, draw them into the game. Mm-hmm. That was so rewarding about it. The other thing I miss about working as Dreamfinder is Figment, is having, having that guy on my left side, having that insane character there who uh, I could never quite be sure what he was going to do. Um, I made sure that I let Figment paint me to a couple of creative corners that were a lot of fun to get out. Sure. In a recent blog post, you wrote about Merida and how she kind of carries on a lot of that same spirit of playing with guests and not just posing for photos and how valuable that is. What actually was that she should do that? Oh, that she should. I don't know that she is doing that. The thing about Merida and uh, is the story of Brave is a wonderful, inspiring story about uh, an exciting and daring way to live your life, which Dreamfinder was kind of the same thing. And drawing a parallel with Merida, I, I wrote about how the, the, whoever the performer is that's getting to play her um, has the same opportunity if they choose to embrace it. Uh, I know that the um, I, as Dreamfinder, I was out on my own. Nobody was telling me what to do or where to go or, or how to handle things. Merida is not going to have that same luxury. She is such a star that she's going to be uh, put into the uh, uh, Disney character process of the queue line of people waiting for pictures and like this. And I, and I put forth in my article on my, on my blog uh, from Dreamer to Dreamfinder at Dreamfinder, D-R-E-E-M-F-I-N-D-E-R dot WordPress.com. Um, I put up the idea that she could do the same kind of thing, that she could engage the, the children, engage the guests in such a way that would put forward the theme of the power of individualism, the power of doing what you feel you must when everyone else around you is telling you that you should behave one way. There is a great excitement and a great power in following your own bliss. And so that's why I wrote the article about Merida, that I think she's a character that is very much like Dreamfinder and that she has the potential to change people's lives. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I've actually uh, met Merida uh, about a month ago, and all of the pieces are there for that. But, you know, I think guests don't expect that, like the ones that you encountered where they just wanted to come up and, like you said, take a picture with the monkey because uh, that's what the previous one did and so that's that's all they want. But I think some maybe want more than that. They just don't really know what to do. Everybody, they don't know how to start that. Everybody wants more than that. They just don't know it. And um, Disney has always given people more than they expect. Mm-hmm. You know, Pirates of the Caribbean, you don't need all those caves. You know, you don't need the waterfalls. It could have been fun if we just went right into the scene with the battle thing. But the caves build it up. The caves create the mood. And sure, they were a necessity because we had to get you to the railroad tracks. But Disney mm-hmm. is all about, here's the premise. Now we're going to take you someplace you've never been and show you something you've never seen. And you may not know enough to ask for it, but we know how to surprise you and to, and to show you something something that you wouldn't expect. That's what I did with Dreamfinder. That's what Merida can do. That's like, like you say, all the pieces are there. And you can't ask, you can't wait for the guests to tell you what they want. Take your theme, 
take your story and say, okay, how can I pay this off? How can I keep the promise of this character? Merida makes a promise in that film, in the way that she tells that story, that she can keep that promise in her personal interaction. Um, and that's what, you know, in, in my book, I talk about the five, the f- five points of great themed entertainment. Three of them are what the guests uh, expect. They expect that you're not going to waste their time, that if you promise that they're going to see the Blues Brothers, then they're going to have an experience of the Blues Brothers, and that you're going to make them laugh, not groan, but laugh, actually laugh, as opposed to just go, oh, that's cute. You want to make them laugh. You want to surprise them. The last two things, the things that they're not expecting, uh, but that make for a successful show is you want to surprise them and you want to move them emotionally and you want to involve them in what you're doing. And um, these are uh, – and this interaction with the guests come under the, the, those two aspects of it. Um, by surprising them, I give them more than they're expecting, which is something that Disney does. When Disney really has a successful attraction, they give you more than you're expecting. We got in the Tower of Terror. We know there's going to be a drop, but the story and the buildup and the suspense and the tie-ins with the Twilight Zone and the quality of that experience is a surprise that draws us in emotionally. So by the time we get to the drop, we're already on edge and we're having a wonderful time and it gives us an emotional context for the drop, which makes it so much more thrilling than just being hauled up a pole at Universal Studios and then dropped. Right. Um, Absolutely. Then this, the uh, the move me is the, is that emotional involvement that comes out of all those elements, and um, that's what engages the imagination, and gets them to play along and uh, and touches people in a personal way. The uh, moment that they have with the Dreamfinder, uh, besides being surprising, it should feel that it's something that's just happening to them. And that's what I was talking about with Merida, that she can do. Now, Dreamfinder, parents would come up with very low expectations. They bring the kid over, and they'll uh, expect to set the kid down. The kid's going to run over to me, throw their arms around me, and then we're all going to turn around and look back at the camera. They're going to take the picture, and then they're going to make a clean getaway. But my job is to uh, draw them into the theme of the attraction, to communicate the message of the journey into imagination. And I'm going to do this by engaging them imaginatively, getting them to play. And so I can't get sucked into what their lowered expectations are. So when they come over, uh, I, you know, they start to put the kid down and um, they say, all right, everybody turn around and smile. And I go, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold it just a second now. Uh, we have to, we've got to have a conversation here just a moment. And so I kneel down and I'll start to talk to the child. And if the parent is smart... They will come around to the side and get pictures of the child interacting with the Dreamfinder. And those are the best pictures. Those are the brilliant pictures. They're the ones where you see the child and Figment and Dreamfinder interacting together, and the kid's got a serious look on their face, and they're thinking about things, and, and we draw them in and play with them that way. And those are always the best pictures. And you know, sometimes you've got to tell the people what they want. And uh, in that respect, we give them more. Than what they wanted, we surprise them, we give them something they weren't expecting, and we give them something to take away with them that's more than a photo. Definitely, definitely. Um, for those 
relatively few guests who do know that there can be something more, which hopefully includes everybody listening to this podcast once they start to kind of understand it a little bit. The way things are structured now, like you were saying, it's not really designed to create that on a consistent basis, but for the guests who are aware that it's at least possible, is there anything that we can do as we go up to to meet a character that can help facilitate and create that as we initiate it so that they can then respond and build that anyway? It's a wonderful question. And the uh, and I'll give you my answer thusly. I'm gonna tell you about my favorite visit to Disneyland. Uh, what was the day that I took my six On September 22, 2004, Oceanic Flight 815 left Sydney, Australia, bound for Los Angeles and crashed on a remote and mysterious island somewhere in the South Pacific. The survivors quickly realized this was no ordinary island. The groundbreaking Emmy Award-winning drama Lost ran on ABC television from September 22, 2004 to May 23, 2010, and remains to this day one of the greatest television series of all time. Relive every moment of this amazing series as we reopen the hatch and take you deep inside each episode of this epic series. My name is Joyce. And I'm Al. And on our show, Lost Flight 815, we'll cover each episode of this immensely popular series in a unique way. We'll watch the show as we record and share our thoughts and lost facts while you listen to the episode with us. So tune in to the Lost 815 podcast and visit us on the web at www.lostflight815.com and relive one of the greatest shows of all time. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at LostFlight815. That brings us to the end of this week's show. A special thank you to Ron Schneider for being my guest on this episode, and to you for listening. Come back next week for the conclusion, where we talk about getting more than you expect and making a Disney park a true experience. What he sees as the future of themed entertainment, what motivates him, and his advice to you, among other things. If you've worked for the Walt Disney Company, and you'd like to share a positive story, email me at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call me at 734-23-STORY. You don't have to have an unbelievable story or be incredibly well-known to be on the show. If you've worked for Disney, the odds are you've got stories. And if you do, we want to hear them. And if you're a guest of any Disney experience and had an encounter or interaction with a cast member that made some extra Disney magic, or for that matter, any special Disney experience you want to share, I'd love to hear from you, too. Do you remember Dreamfinder? Tell me about it. Were you at the Destination D event in Walt Disney World last year, where he came out for that surprise appearance and sang One Little Spark? Let's hear about that, too. You know, I'm still looking for stories from people who have seen one of Yeehaw Bob's shows also, so bring it on. Let's hear it. Call in or send me an email and tell me about your experience. Subscribe to Stories of the Magic in iTunes or on the website. I'm still working on getting it in the Zune marketplace, but that's proving to be a very, very slow process. If you like the show, please rate and review Stories of the Magic in iTunes. Those ratings help make the podcast more visible so it's easier for people to find. 
And I would love for more people to get to hear from these wonderful individuals. Leaving a rating and a review will only take a couple of minutes, and I'd be very grateful to you. If you have any comments, questions, or other feedback, visit storiesofthemagic.com and leave a comment on the show notes for this or any episode. While you're there, check out the links in the show notes to buy Ron's book, From Dreamer to Dreamfinder, 40 Years Behind a Name Tag, as well as other useful links from each episode. Finally, please like the podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash storiesofthemagic and tell your friends about the show. Spread the word that you're listening so others can join in the fun. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Stories of the Magic. There will be other days and other stories. And this tale continues next time. You've been listening to Stories of the Magic with Randy Crane. If you have feedback, want to share a story of your own, or even be a guest on the show, write to Randy at podcast at storiesofthemagic.com or call our listener feedback line, 734-23-STORY. And don't forget to visit the website, storiesofthemagic.com for show notes from this and every episode and to leave your comments. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, live your dreams and make the magic in your world.